take that with you. Good morning. So since I've been out of Genesis for a while, I decided, let's do it again. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Um, not really. This message will not necessarily, well, it will not be an exposition of a text. Um, what I want to do is a flyover of Genesis, because it really has been some time since we've been in this study. Um, but first, I would like to ask if Dennis... And Mitch, where's Mitch? There he is. And Raj, if you three would stand up, because you all three want a brand... No, just kidding. Stand up, though. <clears throat> um, so it, it just... I, I can't express, and I'm sure you sense it in my heart, and I'm sure it's in your heart as well. I can't express what it means to me to be able to take my family away and go away for three weeks and have zero fear. Um, uh, there's not too many things that I'm more protective of outside of my family than this pulpit. And the way it's used, who stands in it, and what's done here um, is of, it's of high, high value to me. And then to have three shepherds, two dealing with cancer, one pulling 60-plus hours a work week, pouring over the word Saturday night, seeking to bring the flock good food. I don't share this to make much of of Dennis and Raj and Mitch. I I share it because I really do publicly want to thank God. That's his design, his doing, his work in these three pastors. And um, I just, I so thank you, brothers, for the work you do, for the passion you have, that you see this as a labor of love. So do me a favor and don't applaud because I don't want that to come off as a clap for these men because these men would say, don't you dare do that. We thank God. And so I want to pray and thank God for these fellow shepherds. So if you bow your heads with me. Father, what a, what a present that you would allow this body to have four Men to co-labor and work hard and seek to be diligent, Lord. We fail all the time. We own that. But Lord, I, I just truly am grateful to you for what you are about here. And I thank you for Raj. I thank you for Dennis. I thank you for Mitch. Father, thank you for Barb and Karen and Mary Ellen. And um, I just ask for your rich blessing in their marriages and their lives. Father, and two of them in their in their health right now, and um, God, just I um, express my thanks to you on behalf of this body for these three fellows. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, now we got the mushy stuff out of the way. <clears throat> Coming back to Genesis, um, if you're visiting, perhaps this is uh, maybe your first Sunday, I don't know, I, I recognize most everybody here, um, or perhaps you started attending, or perhaps you don't even remember we were in Genesis. 
I began the study in Genesis September 15th, 1990. No, wait, what did that say? <laughs> 2019. So we began, we, we had all, everything going on with COVID-19, and so I stopped preaching in Genesis for a, a good amount of time there. And then you have um, holidays, and Amber and I and the kids were gone, just different things. And so what I want to do this morning, the illustration I've given over the years is a box top. When you're putting a puzzle together, I don't, you, maybe you don't do this, but I'm constantly looking at the top of the box to see, what's the picture look like again? Because I've got all these little pieces, and I need to put the pieces in the right spot. Well, if I'm going to get them in the right spot, I need to have a bird's eye view of what I'm dealing with here. Um, when we were on vacation, I was trying to figure out the lay of the land of this little area where my dad and the boys and I were hiking, and you ended up having to go really high to look over a, a, a broad view, so you go, okay, now I got my bearings, now I know where I'm at. So, beloved, that's all I want to do this morning just freshly give you the bearings of where we're at in the book of Genesis, where we've done 25 chapters, Um, which is amazing because Luke Luke took five and a half years. So um, we're cruising. We are so cruising through this book. But I want to start by giving you these, and I've given you them before, but I keep adding to them. If I were to ever write a book, I have no intention of ever writing a book. Better people do that. But I, it would be about this. Seven reasons why I think expositional, verse-by-verse, book preaching is important to the local church. I started with six or seven a few years ago. It's ten now. So by the time I retire, we'll see where we're at. Number one, why I am convinced and convicted to preach through books of the Bible. It is the most natural way we read through a book by ourselves. Most natural way we read through a book by ourselves. I'm not going to give a lot of explanation to these. I'd take the whole sermon time. So just track with me. Number two, it grants us a far greater grasp on the book as a whole. So we don't have a bunch of bits and pieces of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And and, uh, John 3, 16. And... Deuteronomy, and where we have a bunch of verses memorized, but we don't have a grasp of these books as a whole. If I were to put a piece of paper in each one of your hands and asked you, hey, could you write out real quick what Galatians is about, what Ephesians is about, and what Philippians is about? Give me the main themes, how many chapters in each book, who's writing it, who they're writing to. How comfy would you be? Don't answer. How comfy would you be in writing that out? Well, that's part of the desire in a book study, whether it's a Bible study or from this pulpit, We want to give more information, a better grasp of the whole Word of God, rather than Dan Mason stringing together a pile of verses to spin together something that I think is true, but I can't show you it from the book. Number three, it is a safeguard to protect us from seeking to string a group of verses pulled together out of context to support an idea that has come up by, that was come up with by the preacher. This is oftentimes done in our culture where somebody takes a verse, two or three, string it together out of its context, and then preach on that. It is a very scary thing when somebody goes, I know what I'd like to preach on. I want to preach on this. Now I've got to find some verses to make sense. That's very, very scary. Can it be done well? Yeah, you bet. Because then you study the context of each one of the verses that you're bringing together. But that's not really what's done in our culture very regularly. Rather, the Word of God is made to say what the preacher wants it to say on that Sunday. 
Number four, it allows us to learn the different genres and styles of writing in the Bible, styles of different authors as well. Number five, it, and I'm thinking of you, um, it grows our endurance (laughs) to stay with a book for a lengthy amount of time. And I mean that. We are in a world of drive-through theology and drive-through understanding of the word. Yeah, give me a number two, please, and get it here as fast as you can. That's not how it works. You want to know what the word of God has to say? Two words. Hard work. Study the text. Sweat over the text. Give your attention to it. I realize that in our culture it's been packaged so we can get a lot of information really quick, but unfortunately, without the sweat, without the toil, without the prayer, the word just doesn't come through the filter very well. So I believe going through a book for a while is a very profitable practice. Number six, it shows that we genuinely believe that all of God's word is important for our growth. I cannot tell you guys how many times somebody has visited here and they've said, what a weird text. And all I say is, I didn't pick it. It's just, it's just in the word. And this church has been um, encouraged and strengthened and taught that if Dan Mason skips a portion of the text, something is wrong. Why are you hiding from that? Why are you running away from that? What's going on? We want the whole of God's word. God, This is the promise. All scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and given to us. God has given us all of his word on purpose for a good purpose. So I think it's very arrogant of us to say portions of his word are not of importance. Foolish statement. Number seven, it is faith building in how the right text, and I use quotations around the word right, the right text lands on the right Sunday. So, um, Uh, In three days, it will mark 11 years that I've stood up here and opened the Word. I I never ceases to amaze me how a passage, because you guys know, I think you understand, I, I don't do like a preaching calendar. Some pastors do a preaching calendar and they map out for the next whatever. I'm pretty sure I'll be in Genesis next Sunday. We'll find out. And how certain events and certain things have happened in our church, whether it was a death of somebody, a birth of a baby, or some major event that touched our church, and a passage of Scripture lands that Sunday by God's sovereign hand, and nobody here can go, well, Pastor, you really planned that well. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. That's God's grace. Number eight, it forces us to walk through portions of the word that we would likely skip over. Um, A number of months ago, I preached on the passage with Lot and his daughters. And there's there's numerous passages that I have hit from this pulpit where, and I'd be very honest and forthright with you, it's just not my first pick. It's just not where I would go, right? But we're forced, because what else are you going to do? You need to stick with the text. Beloved, I will tell you, this is experiential, so there's no authority attached to it, okay? No authority attached to it, but experientially, some of the, the, the sermons that have spoken the deepest to my soul were the ones in a text that I would likely skip over. So shame on me to even have that mindset. God knows what he's doing way better than you and I do, which brings me to number nine. 
It guards us from chasing after the fads of the world, Christian and non-Christian world. We are playing serious games with our head if we think there's not fads in the Christian church. Particular things that have everybody up in arms or discussing this or discussing that. And I watch people chase the fads of the world and of the church. I believe that rather than chasing that, we should have a rudder that goes clean through it. Number 10. It's really fun. That's it. <clears throat> it really is. I, uh, I've always been surprised. I've made this comment a few times from this pulpit, and I am convinced of it without a shadow of a doubt. It always surprises me when I see a almost boring to the people to hear, we're going to go through the book of Genesis or through the book of Ezekiel for the book of Leviticus. And that's all you say. Rather than seven steps or seven keys that are going to unlock the seven doors into your family's true happiness or something like that, that just really appeals, it grabs, right? What are you guys doing? Uh, Genesis. And it, it, doesn't have, it, it doesn't have all the lights and sirens on the outside that appeal. But beloved, again, experientially, okay? But I believe it's also true from the word. The more I have just walked through books of the Bible, whether it's me teaching, somebody else teaching, men's Bible study, ladies' Bible study, when you're going through a book, there is such a freshness in the Word. Not pre-digested packaging, but you, your eyeballs in your Bible, God's Spirit, God's Word dealing with us. And I, I got to say, I, I, lo- I love walking through books of the Bible with you. And so I want to express my gratitude to you, Pacific Coast Bible Church, for going on this ride, this ride of walking through the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, studying the Word of God, pursuing the Word of God. If I died today, i die an extremely wealthy man, not monetarily, but i I die an extremely wealthy man in that God has allowed me 16 years to preach his word. A guy who should be in hell today. 16 years to open the word before the people of God. Talk about undeserving. So, back to Genesis. I'm going to go through a couple things here and kind of do a flyover of the book. As I said, we've been through 25 chapters. Chapter 26, we'll kick off next week. Uh, this book, the date that most agree upon is around 1445 B.C. The author, Moses, this is attested to by the New Testament authors. The book of Genesis is really a book of foundations. If there's a key word, that's the word I want you to have kind of in your mind when you think of Genesis. It's laying a foundation. Even that title, Genesis, or beginnings, this is the, the starting point. This is why it's there at the beginning. We're, we're laying out foundational principles, things that are, are designed by God on this planet and in us. Uh, we see creation as I preach through those, those early chapters of God calling all things into existence by the word of his power. We see the fall. We see Adam and Eve as they sin, as they, as they taste that fruit. Eve tastes that fruit, passes it to Adam. Adam tastes that fruit, and they both recognize their nakedness. They recognize their shame before God. They hide 
away from the Lord, try to hide away from the Lord. Then we see the sinfulness of man. One of the more interesting characters to me is, or characters, plural, is Cain and Abel. Because they're the next generation where we're going to ask this question, what are they like? Adam and Eve were sinless, then fallen. What kind of kids will come from them? And you have the very first murder in history between the sons of Adam and Eve. That's why it's always interesting when people say, man, the world's getting a lot worse. Uh, hello? No, no, it's not. Um, you've been through 25 chapters of Genesis. Ew, it's, it's pretty, pretty nasty. And as we look at our world, we say, wow, it's getting a lot worse. Well, there are some blessings that have been in this country with some great Christian principles. But beloved, don't fool yourself to think that because you're an American, you are righteous. You're dead in sins and trespasses before the living God. Nobody's righteous apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We see God's working with mankind, and this is the kind of a hovering point of the whole book, as we see God Almighty is working with people. Where, when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have said, done, <laughs> see ya. And then they're destroyed, start over. Rather, we see promises of God, covenants made with mankind, and a consistent uh, pursuit of man by God. We're told that no man seeks after God. We're told that all, all men are dead, fallen, sinful, lost human beings. And God in his grace pursues man. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. It was, it was God the one who's the seeker in this event. As he meets with Abraham, as he meets with Noah, as he meets with Adam and Eve, we see Almighty God, the sovereign of the universe, pursuing mankind. Now, that brings me to my next point. One of my desires, and I'm sure it's yours. I, beloved, I know it's yours. One of my desires in the study of the Word is to, number one and first and foremost, know God. I want to know God. I want to know about Him and I want to know him. And so, at times in our world, maybe you've heard this from a friend or a neighbor or something, where somebody says, when I think of God, I like to think of him as. And that's where we can politely say, I love you, but I really don't care at all what you'd like to think of him as. That'd be like if I said, you know what, when I like to think of, of my wife, I like to think of her as. Well, hold on a second. What is she like? You would all ask that. And yet, in reference to God, we're so quick to just let it go by. No, what what God say he was like? I want to know what God said he's like. And so, as we're studying through the book of Genesis, in particularly, where I'm asking this question, God, what are you? Who are you? What are you like? What are characteristics of you? I want God in his grace through an incredible storyline, has preserved and produced his word to the point, here it is in English, on our laps this morning, revealing himself. Here's revelation from God. His design, not mine. He, designed, he, he planned to reveal himself from the written word. And here it is in front of us. And beloved, the reality is this is the sovereign of the universe saying, I will let you know what I'm like. 
Even in our relationships, you don't really know a person unless they make a decision to let you know them. The only reason you know Dan Mason is because Dan Mason has let some of myself be known to you, and vice versa. God Almighty (laughs) has made a decision to let himself be known to his redeemed. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. You shouldn't get to know what God's like. You shouldn't know God. You should be in judgment. I should be in judgment. If there's anything I can shake my fist in his face and demand, God, you owe me, it's his wrath. But rather, he's my closest companion, the the sweetest friend I have. The one on dark days where nobody else knows, he's right there. In in tenderness and power and love holding me. There's no greater friend than the living God. So here's a few things that we've picked up and will pick up in the book of Genesis. Number one, he's eternal. Never beginning. Never ending. You know, the classic question, right? The kid goes, okay, God made everything, but who made God? It's just a classic question. Everybody asks that. And my answer now has gotten very simplified. No. He didn't. He wasn't. Nobody did. He is forever. He has no beginning. Well, that's hard to understand. Join the club. You kidding? Of course it's hard to understand. You're talking about the sovereign almighty of the universe, and we go, that's hard to understand. Duh! Of course it is. That's the point. That is the point that we're supposed to be caught up in awe at him. Not, oh good, I got him in my box. He fits perfectly, and I carry him around with me. No, 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 no. No, no, rather it is us being in awe at the vastness, the infinitude of this magnificent person. He's eternal. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. That means he knows everything. He's everywhere. And he has all power. And I'm not shrugging that word all. When I say all, I mean all. He is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. You know, it's interesting, you guys. The more I see in the word the revelation of what God is like, the more I am amazed, just strikingly amazed that I'm prideful. To know that who he is and and then to to know who I am in light of who he is. Pride is insanity. And yet here we are. Another aspect of God is he's sovereign. Nobody slaps the hand of God and goes, ah, ah, ah. Nobody tells God what to do. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. This is hard for some folks who like control. Folks who want the controls of everything. This is very difficult for them to be told, you are not in control. The sovereign of the universe has complete control control control. Now, I, 
I kind of take it on the flip side of that. I don't go, well, I think Dan should be in control. I don't think that. Um, you, if you've ever driven with me, you don't think that either. Rather, I find an incredible amount of peace. My God's in sovereign control. I don't buck that system. I love that system. I rejoice in that. My heart sings with such gladness to know, no, God is sovereign over all things. Well, what about, yep? What about, yep? And I find absolute joy and rest in that. I cannot tell you how many sticky issues, difficulties, 3 a.m. sleepless mornings where I have gripped that reality that, nope, no, there's nobody out of, in control here but him, and I can rest. I can rest. We see he's creator. The variety in the mind of God is amazing. To think about him creating all things, colors, and uh, you, just looking at the sky, looking into space, looking out at the vastness of the ocean, looking at the human body. You, 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 you can't see it with a telescope or a microscope. It is so incredible what has come from this God. We see him as judge. That's tricky, right? The world can't stand that when we say, well, you're going to stand before him someday. Well, I'm basically good. No, you're not. You're all the way bad. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the sovereign of the universe, who knows all things, knows you better than you know you, will judge you. And either you are judged by Christ's perfection or you're judged for your sin. But he is judge. He's also redeemer. The one that pursues, the one that loves, the one that offers a sacrifice, the one that comes and lays his life down in our stead. We see that God is loving. You see, all these, I, this is not Dan Mason. These are what the word reveal. These characteristics are what God says he's like. He has decided to reveal himself to us. Now, let me be careful to say um, he is absolutely a person and personal. As I shared last Sunday in reference to the Lord pursuing Thomas, it wasn't as a God who, who um, is like this high up person and then there's this crowd we call the church and there's no intimacy. This is as intimate as it gets between you and the living God. How does that work that he can have that with every last one? Above my pay grade, I don't know. But I do know that that's the truth. I know when a seven-year-old bends his knee and says, God, please help mommy and daddy with such and such. The living God is right there in the midst of that. Every bit as much as Billy Graham, who would stand over around thousands of thousands of people petitioning the Lord. We go, now, Billy's got God's attention, so's a seven-year-old. Don't you dare say Billy's got more attention because more people are listening. The reason we have his attention is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The layout of this book of Genesis is quite simple um, as far as just tracking down kind of the pieces of it. Let me run through this kind of quickly. Creation, fall, and then you have a group of generations. And you see this over and over. The generations of, the generations of, the generations of. So you have the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, 
the generations of the sons of Noah, the generations of the sons of Shem, or generations of Shem, of Terah, of Ishmael, the generations of Isaac, generations of Esau, generations of Jacob, many details and particulars regarding Abraham and Joseph. Now, there's particulars about numerous people, but Abraham sure gets a lot of ink in this book, and Joseph does as well, where God in particular is showing his relationship with him, especially the covenant promises made to Abraham that we'll see run through the rest of our Bible. Points of controversy. I get a kick out of this because these are controversial. (laughs) They should not be. Theologically, they should not be. But uh, creation versus evolution. All I'm saying is that the Word of God, in the book of Genesis in particular, touches on controversial subjects, okay? Creation versus evolution. God's design for marriage. The sin of homosexuality. God's design for male and female. Now, if you think about just the things I just said right there, it's always interesting to me when somebody will say, oh, the Bible's such an old, dusty book that just honestly doesn't speak to our day. Did you hear what I just read? You watch any news station you want, and you're going to hear about those issues in our world right now. God's eternal plan for the salvation of the Gentiles and how that all lines up in the promise to Abraham. God's wrath poured out on man, particularly Sodom and Gomorrah. You want to talk about a controversial passage in 2022? That is certainly a controversial passage. The worldwide flood. The truth of original sin. Original sin, if you're not familiar with that term, the concept that all died in Adam. That when Adam died, all died. If you're struggling with what I just said, I would encourage you to sit down with Romans chapter 5 this afternoon and do a detailed study of that passage. There's no option there. Those in Adam died, which means all have died. Spiritual death. We are born sinners in Adam. He is the head. The Tower of Babel and the discussion of race, languages, etc., and the person and work of Satan. It's interesting how often, I don't know if you guys are hearing this as much, but in our world currently today, how many times you hear the word evil? That's evil. Well, they're evil. Well, this is evil. Well, that's evil. And I just want to ask the question, could you explain that? According to who? Where'd you get that? Where'd that begin? What's your definition of this concept of this is pure evil? I hear that sometimes people say, oh, that guy is pure evil. Give me a better, uh, give me some foundation where that come from. And so the person and work of Satan is extremely controversial. So why the book of Genesis? And I may land the plane a little bit early this morning. I don't know, but probably not. The, the, why the book of Genesis? Um, I don't have some really special practice that I do in particular. I typically ask the elders, you know, what do you guys think? This is where I'm leaning. I think this would be good. And, and we pray about it, and we say, sure. But I've been, surpri- I've been particularly surprised at this study. Um, when I first got here, I preached through the book of Philippians, then the Sermon on the Mount, um, Galatians, and Luke, and all those were wonderful, but this study has been particularly refreshing and demanding for me. 
Why the book of Genesis? Number one, the greatest need we have, okay, when I say that, right, ears should pop up, the greatest need you and I have is to know God. There's a ton of things you and I need. But in a priority list, you need to know God. You need to know about him and you need to know him. And Genesis is a beautiful book that lays out so much of his character. Number two of why Genesis, in a world where God's designs is absolutely under attack, I think it is very fitting and appropriate for us to go back to the book of foundations, the beginnings, and ask the question, what has God laid out? What is the design of Almighty God? Because I don't know if you've noticed, beloved, but in our culture, very much the attack has, it's, it's going after the design of God in a lot of ways. Um, the design of God in marriage just the design of God in male and female, in sex. The design of God in how we treat our parents and parental leadership. The design of God in so many different categories where this is how God made it, ultimately coming up to God designed us to worship him and not ourselves, which I think is kind of a capstone on all the rest of it. So as we see the attack on the design of the living God... Coming back to Genesis, I believe, kind of gives us a fresh restructuring of our understanding of who am I, who is God, and why is this designed this way? Is this on purpose, or do we just play with it? Have we, become, have we evolved so much that we're so much smarter in 2022, so now we can tell God, well, that was a little archaic, and that's something they did back then, but now we know better, Right? You know how often I hear that? I'm sure you hear that, where folks want to say, well, the Bible, they were like that, but now we're smarter. Are we really? Anybody who who challenges me that we're smarter now, I want to hand them a copy of John Owen's The Death of Death and say, read that and write a book report and get it back to me in a week. Some of the finest theologians in history who never once logged on And they were light years, light years over us in their understanding and their brilliance. So I don't buy that in the least. I think we're, <clears throat> I think we are dumber because we've been granted so many riches and we have become so lazy with all that is at our fingertips and we forgot to sweat over the word. Personal opinion, take it, not take it, that's okay. But I am convinced of that. And so I believe Genesis, in a very real way, is running to our rescue. And hearing God's words say, this was the design, this is what God has planned. So guys, my prayer is that we glorify our God in the study, the understanding, and obedience of the truths found in the book of Foundations. That we can put a little bit more steel in the spine of the believer to go, no, that's what the Word says. It's what it says. I don't get a choice. It's what the text says. And so here I stand. 
May we surrender to the truth of the living God, stand strong for the truth in a world that is tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, everything, voices, everybody's talking, everybody's disagreeing, everybody's being tossed to and fro. We're watching a world eat itself. It's just chaotic. And there is this magnificent anchor for the saint called the Word of God. And so if there's ever been a time in history, and I believe there's always been this in history, but right now in particular, and I will say particularly in in our country, beloved, if there was ever a time for the, the church of Jesus Christ to grip the Word with all their heart, with all their strength to pursue the Lord via His Word, 2022 would be a great time. Now, last, is something I haven't touched on yet that I've touched on most of the study of Genesis with you guys, so your familiarity should be right there alongside mine. The way the the Scripture works is that you have a whole bunch of little stories, I'll call them minor narratives, underneath the great big story, the major narrative. So you've got um, creation, fall, uh, and then you have um, Cain and Abel. Then you have, you just fill in the blank, many different storylines, many different events. And at times, I feel like we can get lost in the minor narrative and lose sight of the major narrative. So the minor narrative plays into the major narrative. The major narrative of Scripture is the narrative of redemption, that God is going to save a people unto himself. So we see creation, fall, and then God's pursuit of salvation. I heard, um, and I may not have written it down, I don't think I did, basically the concept that we see these major divisions of God creating, man falling, God's pursuit in redemption. As we go through this, beloved, we see a major narrative that all the little narratives are connected to and fit in. So this is why we want to be careful not to get too overly bogged down by the reality of of what's happening in the smaller narrative. We don't want to lose that large narrative of the word, okay? So here's a question I'll ask you. Just put a kind of a tool in your hand. And again, I'm probably not telling you anything you don't know, but it's good for refresher. As you're studying the Word, as we're going through a book of the Bible, one question we should ask, I ask myself this every Sunday as I'm, or every week as I'm preparing and, and studying, how does this fit into the big picture? How does this fit into the, the, the red thread of redemption? How does this fit into going to Christ? And as we see that meta-narrative, that big narrative, the big story, all those little stories start to make more and more sense as we see them fit into place underneath that major story. Does that make sense? Not rhetorical. You can nod ahead if you would. Does that, does that kind of compute? So I believe it's vitally important we don't lose sight of the massive picture while we're putting together some of the smaller pictures. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring. And I find it so fascinating, the next word is singular, he, not they. He, one particular offspring from woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Kind of uh, in code, the language of, you'll kill him, but it's going to hurt you. Your heel will be bruised, but you're going to crush his head. What on earth could that be? And then you start studying through the text of Scripture. You start leading up to it, and you land Isaiah 53 that tells us about the suffering servant all the way down to that moment where the Lord Jesus is crucified, where the enemy is done away, not totally, but he is crushed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that massive narrative is the narrative. And where are we at in the story? You are other sheep that he has that are not of this fold, that them also he must bring. You are the Gentiles being grafted in. You and I are the saints. You and I are the church. You and I are those who are purchased of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham. You are. You are in this glorious, glorious narrative. So, the Son of God, Almighty, King of the universe, in the presence of dirty, well, they were dirty-feated guys, and then he washed them. He took bread and he snapped it. He gave some to them. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took a cup and he handed the cup to him and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the promise. I'm making a promise here, fellas. This is the new covenant, but not in the blood of animals, not in the blood of bulls and goats. They They won't work. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until his return. Return, I thought he died. He did. And he gloriously rose from the grave. He's at the right hand of Almighty God, sovereignly in control, and will return for his bride shortly. That is the beautiful big narrative. And I want to thank the Lord for it and come to his table. Father, I thank you uh, 